Exodus 5. After this presentation to Israel's leaders, Moses and Aaron went to see Pharaoh. They said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, for they must go into the wilderness to hold a religious festival in my honor. Is that so, retorted Pharaoh? And who is the Lord that I should listen to him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. But Aaron and Moses persisted. The God of the Hebrews has met with us, they declared. Let us take a three-day trip into the wilderness so we can offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. If we don't, we will surely die by disease or the sword. Who do you think you are, Pharaoh shouted, distracting the people from their tasks? Get back to work. Look, there are many people here in Egypt, and you're stopping them from doing their work. The same day Pharaoh sent this order to the slave drivers and foremen he had set over the people of Israel. Do not supply the people with any more straw for making bricks. Let them get it themselves. But don't reduce their production quotas by a single brick. They obviously don't have enough to do. If they did, they wouldn't be talking about going into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to their God. Load them down with more work. Make them sweat. That will teach them to listen to these liars. So the slave drivers and foremen informed the people, Pharaoh has ordered us not to provide straw for you. Go and get it yourselves. Find it wherever you can. But you must produce just the same, just as many bricks as before. So the people scattered throughout the land in search of straw. The slave drivers were brutal. Meet your daily quotas of bricks, just as you did before, they demanded. Then they whipped the Israelite foremen in charge of the work crews. Why haven't you met your quotas either yesterday or today, they demanded. So the Israelite foremen went to Pharaoh and pleaded with him. Please don't treat us like this, they begged. We are given no straw, but we are still told to make as many bricks as before. We are beaten for something that isn't our fault. It is the fault of the slave drivers for making such unrealistic demands. But Pharaoh replied, you're just lazy. You obviously don't have enough to do. If you did, you wouldn't be saying, let us go so we can offer sacrifices to the Lord. Now get back to work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the regular quota of bricks. Since Pharaoh would not let up on his demands, the Israelite foremen could see that they were in serious trouble. As they left Pharaoh's court, they met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting outside for them. The foreman said to them, May the Lord judge you for getting us into this terrible situation with Pharaoh and his officials. You have given them an excuse to kill us. So Moses went back to the Lord and protested, Why have you mistreated your own people like this, Lord? Why did you send me? Since I gave Pharaoh your message, he has been even more brutal with your people. You have not even begun to rescue them. I love preaching to you guys. This has felt like home to me. And it's funny because every time I get up here, it feels like I get to connect with every single one of you all at the same time, which is like a unique experience, I guess. Um, And I I don't think I said this the last time because the last time I spoke, the Raptors were like making their way through the playoffs, but we're the NBA champs, guys. We're the NBA champs, yeah. I received that clap in the back. We are the NBA champs, 
And it's fitting that we're doing a summer series on Moses because we have entered the promised land. But yet Moses could not enter into the promised land because Kauai has left. It was short-lived. We got there, we've, we tasted victory, and then we went to LA. I mean, what can you do? Warm weather, all year round, the coast. It's, it's hard to argue against, but uh, I just had to get that off my chest. Okay, now I can, now I can get into the real stuff. Um, as Dave mentioned, if you guys have been with us for any number of time, we've been using the summer periods to look at the Old Testament. Throughout the year, we usually look at most of the New Testament with Advent and Lent and Pentecost. Our Christian calendar is made up mostly around the New Testament, but we spend the summer really diving into um, specific books or characters. And last year, we looked at some of the wisdom literature, the Psalms and the Proverbs, various other different books of the Old Testament. And this year, we decided to do an eight-week series on the life of Moses, a life with the living God. Who is Moses? And so last week, we looked at calling and identity, Moses encountering God at the burning bush. And this week, I've got the task of talking about the plagues. Kind of a difficult subject, but I'm hopefully going to talk to you about three specific things. And there are three things that I really want to highlight that we're going to get to. But before I do that, I just want to briefly take a moment to talk about the Old Testament. Because we do spend so much time in the New Testament, I think it's important that we look at some of the complexities in the Old Testament. And most simply is that scholars date the Exodus to approximately 1446 BC. So that's before Christ. So that's roughly like two to 3,000 years old. And you have to think that we are conditioned in the world that we live in to think a certain way. The world that we live in causes us to have a worldview, as they call it. And we have a very Western, modernized worldview. And so what we need to do in order to fully understand what's going on here is to place our minds in this time, in this period, so we can fully grasp what's going on. And my goal is to try and unpack some of the, some of the complexities I only have 30 minutes, so, and we're covering chapters 5 to 10. So I'm going to kind of do broad strokes as an overview, and then we're going to narrow in. So that's what I want to start off with. I'm going to start off with an overview of what has happened in Scripture. What is happening in the Scripture that we're looking at? So we see that Moses encounters the living God, and he has been called to deliver God's people out of the hands of Pharaoh, out of slavery, and into the promised land, the land of Canaan. And now when Moses and Aaron approach Pharaoh in chapter 5, and they ask him to take a three-day journey into the wilderness to make sacrifices and to worship the Lord, Moses has this very particular response. And this is the response that the main bulk of the message is going to be focused around. Who is the Lord? Pharaoh responds in Exodus chapter 5, verse 2. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. This is going to be central to what we're looking at today. We're going to look at it in three different ways. We're going to look at who is the Lord to the Egyptians and to Pharaoh. That's the first thing we're going to look at. The second thing we're going to look at is who is the Lord to Moses and the Israelites. 
And the third thing we're going to look at is who is the Lord to us? Now that we understand who he is in scripture, who is he to us at this very moment? And so as Moses approached Pharaoh and they ask him to go to the wilderness, Pharaoh responds in this way, and he's angry that they've asked this request of him. He's angered, and he makes Israel make meet, sorry, the same harsh demands, and they still have to gather the materials on their own. As they make this request, the people see that Moses and Aaron are entering into the courts of Pharaoh, and they know that something is going on, so they wait outside to confront them. And they say, you've made this worse for us. What are you doing? And Moses cries out to God and says, you haven't done what you said you were going to do. You haven't delivered us. Where are you, God? We see Moses questioning God's goodness. And then in chapter 6, God reveals his redemptive plan to Moses. Old Testament scholars note this as the gospel of the Old Testament in Exodus 6, verses 1 to 8. After that, there's a genealogy which shows that Aaron and Moses are of, are the, li- of, <laughs> are of the line of the Levites, which means that they are able to enter into the priestly courts. And then from chapter 7 to 10, God uses a cycle of plagues to bring about his redemptive purposes for both Egypt and for Israel. That's really important. And so because I only have 30 minutes, I don't want to spend all my time just unpacking every little detail. As much as I would love to do that, we don't have time for that. But what I do want to highlight is there is a cycle or a pattern that we see in Scripture from chapter 7 to 10. There's a cycle of the plagues, and it happens repeatedly over and over and over again. Oh, perfect. It's up on the screen. The first thing that we see is that the Lord speaks to Moses. He addresses Moses. And the second thing that we see is Moses then addresses Pharaoh. He acts as a prophetic voice, and he speaks the words that he hears directly from God to Pharaoh. Now, what's interesting about this is that originally Moses complained that he was not able to speak to Pharaoh. I don't know if you remember that. He said, God, I have a, a, basically a speech impediment. How can I deliver your people? How can I speak in the courts of educated men? And as we get to the fourth plague, we see that Moses, who was originally relying on his brother Aaron to do most of the talking, begins to get courage and begins to be strengthened, and he's able to actually speak to Pharaoh on his own. And from that point onwards, he's able to address Pharaoh on his own. And I don't know about you, but that's super encouraging for me, because here we have this guy who's a murderer, who's of old age, who stutters, who feels like he can't do anything. And God uses that person to bring about his redemptive purposes for the entire nation of Israel. And so I think that's a word for us today in that if you think God can't use you for his redemptive purposes, you're absolutely wrong. There's nothing that you've done that God can't use for his redemptive purposes. That's who he is. That's a nature of God. That's a side note. We can't spend all our time there, but... I thought that was really, really important as we see the character development of Moses, one that doubts God to one that delivers Israel. 
The third thing that we see in the cycle after Moses addresses Pharaoh is that the plague is unleashed by the Lord. The plague is unleashed. The next thing we see is that the magicians or the sorcerers of Pharaoh's court try to match it. They say, okay, you can do that, but so can we. What's interesting is the magicians can only conjure up certain replications for the first two plagues. After that, it becomes too great and they're no longer able to match what the Lord can do. The fifth thing we see in this cycle is that Pharaoh either negotiates or he repents. He says, okay, okay, I will let you sacrifice to your God, but only in the land. You can't travel. He continues to make different negotiations, but Moses says that would not be right because Moses knows that it has to be the way that the Lord asks. Or later on, as the plagues get more severe, Pharaoh actually says, I've sinned. Call on your God and ask this to go away. Which brings us to the sixth point of the cycle, is that Moses asks the Lord to remove the plague. He says, Lord, would you take this away from these people? And then finally, the last part of the cycle we see is that Pharaoh's heart becomes hard. And this happens over and over and over again. This cycle happens nine different times. I'm not going to highlight the 10th time because we're going to look at that next week, but we're going to look at the first nine. And this happens nine times to all the various different plagues. First, we have the Nile turning into blood. Then we have frogs entering people's homes. Then we have gnats that cover the land and flies that cover the land. Then the cattle are struck down. Then the people are covered in boils. Hail falls from the sky. Locusts cover the land. And then darkness, complete darkness. And so that's kind of our overview for today. This is the section of scripture that we're covering. And so now I want to get into the first thing that I want to address. Who is the Lord to Pharaoh and the Egyptians? Who is the Lord to Pharaoh and the Egyptians? That's the first thing I want to look at. It's interesting that in Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? Now, I believe this can be read with two different inflections. The first is that Pharaoh genuinely doesn't know who the Lord is. And Yahweh will use the plagues to reveal himself to Pharaoh. He's using this as a teaching moment saying, you asked, who am I? And now I'm about to show you who I am. That's one way of reading that question. I think the second way of reading that question is that Pharaoh's saying, who is the Lord compared to me? I'm Pharaoh. Who is the Lord of the Israelites compared to me? I am but a God among men. You see, the reason Pharaoh has this response is due to the Egyptian culture. In the Egyptian culture or in Egyptian mythology, they believe that there were many gods. They're known as a polytheistic culture. All that means is they served multiple different gods, various different gods. And now, within the Egyptian hierarchy, or pantheon as they call it, Pharaoh was at the top. Pharaoh was the highest god 
amongst all the gods. He was worshipped and praised. There's actually lore that believes that the Pharaoh was a deity incarnate. He was the offspring of the God of the sun. And so Pharaoh was worshipped and praised. Pharaohs were believed to not die. And so their bodies were entombed and mummified, and they were worshipped and praised even after death. It even got so far as they would make idols in the image of Pharaoh, and the, the idols themselves would become gods because they had some relationship to Pharaoh. That's how powerful Pharaoh was in his day and time. And so we see it makes sense why Pharaoh is asking this question, who is the Lord compared to me? I have everything, and I am a God. But what we see is that the Lord reveals himself as the one true God above all other gods, including Pharaoh himself. And we have some examples here that I thought might be helpful illustrations. This is the first God that I want to talk about. This God's name is Happy. And this God is the God of the Nile. And so I don't know if you can see quite well on the screen, but there are plants on its head depicting the, the wildlife and the vegetation that came from the Nile. This God was depicted as blue to represent the color of the water. And this God, you can't really see, but had female body parts. And what that meant was that the Nile was completely abundant. It was the God of abundance. You see, the Nile was worshipped and praised because it offered a lifestyle of abundance. It actually is said that homes that were closer to the Nile were taxed more because they received more benefits being closer to the water. This is how powerful the Nile was. And so it's interesting that God, on his first plague, turns the Nile into blood. Now, I believe what's happening here is that this isn't random, this isn't arbitrary, but this is actually a specific attempt for God to reveal himself as above all the other gods that are worshipped in, in Egypt. Yahweh, the I am that I am, is revealing himself as above all of the other gods that are worshipped. And so the Egyptians are slowly beginning to realize, wait, this God that we serve, the Nile God, he can't protect us. Why is the water turned into blood? He can't do anything over the power of these of the Israelites, God. But it continues. This isn't a one-off. The next God that we have, is her name is Hecate. Now, what's interesting about Hecate is that she is the frog goddess. She is half-human, half-frog. I don't know if the wheels are turning in your minds, but you probably remember that the second plague was frogs. And so what's the Lord doing here? He is once again revealing himself as above the other gods of Egypt. In the Egyptian households, amulets and different various items of clothing depicted the goddess Hecate, and they were used to protect the home and protect women during childbirth. Hecate was a god of protection. And it's interesting 
that when God sends the plague, the frogs enter into the homes. They enter into the Egyptian homes because as I've said so many times, God is teaching the Egyptians, this is who I am. I'm above every other thing. Or how about one more? This is the god Hathor. Now, in an agricultural society, cows and cattle were seen as uh, means of wealth, means of prosperity. And so the cow goddess Hathor was exemplified fertility. She was known as the great mother. And once again, cattle were struck down um, in the fifth plague. And so the Lord is using these examples as a teaching moment to say, I am above the things that you worship. This is who I am. Or lastly, the god Ra. Now what's interesting about Ra, the sun god, is that This was believed to be the principal God, the creator of the universe and the source of all life. Besides Pharaoh, Ra was second in command, the most powerful behind Pharaoh. And it's interesting that as the plagues continue, the ninth plague is darkness and they continue to grow in severity. You see, by that point, the Egyptians would have realized when they were in total darkness, our hope is gone. What have we been worshiping? The God of the Israelites is the one true God. That was the aim for God to teach the Israelites and to teach Pharaoh, this is who I am. Tracking with me so far? Okay, cool. So the second thing I want to look at is who is the Lord to Moses and the Israelites? Who is the Lord to Moses and the Israelites? I think it's interesting that we see in chapter 5, verse 3, after Moses and Aaron ask Pharaoh, who is the Lord? They reply with this phrase, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. I don't know about you, but that strikes me as odd. I feel like if they really know God, if they really knew who he was, they would have said, our God, my God. Use a personal inflection, but it seems very aloof. It seems like they don't know who God is, the God of the Hebrews. I mean, they're Hebrew after all. And so what I think is happening here is that even Moses and Aaron and the Israelites don't truly know who the Lord is. The plagues were meant to teach them who the Lord was. You have to remember that they were enslaved for 400 years And they had heard stories about their ancestors, about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but they hadn't been revealed to by name. And God says that. I spoke to them before, but now I'm revealing myself by name and I'm going to make myself known to you. And so some of the things that I think that God is teaching the Israelites can be found in Exodus chapter 6. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 5, it says, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel. And so what's the Lord doing here? He's teaching them that the Lord hears the cries of his people. I have heard the groanings of my people. As I've said, they were enslaved for 400 years. I don't know about you, but after like a week, I'd be like, God, where are you? Hello? 400 years of slavery. They must have thought that their cries had fallen on deaf ears, that their Lord had 
could not hear them, that their voice was not powerful enough, but God was going to teach them that I listen to my people and I hear the cries. I'm not far off, but I'm actually really close. And I care about the inner workings of my people. From this point on, the Israelites learned that they had favor with God and they were able to cry out and to speak with him. This is an important characteristic of God, that he listens to his people. I think another thing that God wanted to teach the Israelites throughout these plagues is that I've remembered my covenant, or I've remembered you. I have not forgotten about you. The Lord has not forgotten his people. As I said, it could be so easy to think that the Lord doesn't care about me. If he did, he would have delivered us already. But God seeks to redeem his people, and he has not forgotten the promise that he made to their ancestors. Or how about the Lord redeems his people? I think that's another thing that's so central to what the Lord is doing in this plagues is that he's redeeming his people. He says, I will deliver you from slavery and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. This, this idea to be redeemed, to be bought with a price. God did something that we could not do for ourselves, that the Israelites could not do for themselves. And this theme carries on into the New Testament as we see. Or how about this? The Lord is personable. He's personal. Sorry, he's personal. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, he says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. He goes from being the God of Hebrews to my God. It becomes personal, and God is revealing himself as the one who's close and who cares. He's not far off, but he's really close. And I think the last thing that God is trying to teach the Israelites and Moses is that the Lord has greater things in store for us than we can ask or imagine. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 8, he says, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the land flowing with milk and honey. This was not just a fantasy, but this is actually where God had intended for his people to end up. You see, it would have been easy for them to think that that's just a dream. There's no way that that could happen to us. But in actuality, God had that planned all along, and he was proving to his people that slavery isn't the end. I have more for you. There's freedom in store. And so those five things, I believe, are what God is trying to teach the Israelites throughout these plagues. And the last thing I want to look at today, who is the Lord to us? This question. Now that we've seen who the Lord is to the Egyptians and who the Lord is to the Israelites, who is he to us at this very day? You see, I th the, thing I, the thing I love about the Old Testament is that as we study it, we get to reflect on the ways God has been faithful in the past, but we have the New Testament that bridges the gap. You see, it doesn't stop there. That's not where it ended. 
And Christ is the one that fulfills the ultimate redemptive plan of God. You see, this was just the catalyst, the exodus, the plagues. This was just the beginning. But Christ ultimately brought it to completion. Listen to what Hebrews 3 verses 1 and 6 has to say. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and the high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house, has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house, as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken to later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. You see, what the writer of the Hebrews is getting at is that Christ bridged the gap. All of these characteristics that were available to the Israelites are available to us now. And we get to be a part of that because we are God's house. And so now we are able to say that the Lord hears us. He hears the cries that we offer him. And I want to encourage you, if you feel like God doesn't hear you, he does. And he knows. God isn't far off, but he's close. The Lord has not forgotten about you. Although it may seem like it at times, the Lord doesn't forget. He never forgets his people. The Lord redeems his people. He works to redeem every single area of your life. I believe that, and I've seen it in my own life. Areas that I thought were completely gone, God has used in amazing ways that I thought weren't even possible. The Lord is personal, and he cares about each and every one of us individually. He's individually invested in the inner workings of your life. And lastly, I truly believe that the Lord has greater things in store for each and every one of us here this morning. The Lord has more than what we see in front of us. Often times we can only see directly what's in front of us, but God has the perspective to see all. And there's more that he wants to do. Slavery isn't the end. Where you are right now isn't the end. There's more that God wants to do in and through your lives. So St. Clair, it's my privilege today to offer you this benediction. A benediction is just a blessing, and it's powerful that I'm able to, to speak this blessing over you. This comes from Exodus chapter 6, um, verses 6 to 8, and this is the message reading. It says this, I am God. I will bring you out from under the cruel, hard labor of Egypt. I will rescue you from slavery. I will redeem you, intervening with great acts of judgment. I'll take you as my own people, and I'll be God to you. You'll know that I am God, your God who brings you out from under the cruel, hard labor of Egypt. I'll bring you into a land that I promised to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and give it to you 
as your own. I am God. Be blessed. We'll see you next week.